today I have Rob Gell here. You may know him previously as a weather presenter for Channel 10, but he is also an environmental geographer and specifically a coastal geomorphologist, specialising in the environmental processes that continually shape our coastlines. He's not the biggest fan of plastics and the creation of waste himself, therefore he promotes working towards what is known as a circular economy. He discusses the types of accessibility we have, what will drive change, potential government policies and what individuals can do to help. My chat with Rob was extremely interesting and informative. Hopefully you'll feel the same. So without further ado, here's Rob. So hi Rob, really great to have you here today. How's it going? I'm pretty good, Lauren. It's Friday as it happens and um, it's a lovely day in Melbourne. So uh, I've got a few things to do, but uh, I'm looking forward to having a chat with you. Fantastic. It was good to hear. Um, could you just fill me in on a few details about yourself and what it is that you do? Uh, I'm a director of a, two or three companies uh, that may be of interest to you and the research and study that you're doing. Um, I'm a director of a company called Rethink Sustainability, uh, and Rethink uh, provides, provides sustainability advice from anything from really modern slavery through to energy efficiency and smart energy management programs and sort of everything in between we do. Uh, we have uh, a circle of um, suppliers and we, and we identify a lot of products that we offer and recommend to organisations. I'm also a director of a company called Attentus, which is an environmental monitoring technology using smart sensors that do that monitor weather and air quality and a whole range of other things. So that's sort of big data in real time. I'm also a director of Greenco Water, which produces a modular pack flat tank, which is a very uh, logistics cost-saving uh, device, and another company that makes a new water tank called Circular Things, which in fact is a water tank, which is a fence. So you can set up a water trading network amongst uh, a, a number of adjacent properties. Um, and uh, in the non-profit world, I'm the vice president of the Royal Society of Victoria, which is um, a leading, we, we, we like to call it the Switzerland of science. So it's, it brings together and promotes and advocates for, and advocates for science been around since the 1860s. I enjoy that as a as a non-profit role uh, and, and a couple of other things but I've been working in uh, environmental consulting and sustainability advisory for a long time uh, because I sort of began my journey as an undergraduate in the early 70s at the tail end of the first environment revolution. Oh well, there you go. Now I did hear you were a coastal geomorphologist is that right? That's correct. I graduated uh, from Melbourne University with a science degree and my specialisation was in physical geography and in fact geomorphology, which is the, the study of uh, landforms and the way that the Earth's crust has evolved uh, and particularly as a coastal geomorphologist. So I was interested in uh, beaches and waves and currents and dunes and estuaries and lagoons and cliffs uh, and ultimately then uh, came to teach about that and moved into, you know, man's impact uh, on those systems, but it's those natural coastal systems. So I studied anything from uh, beaches made of shell fragments to the origin of Victorian beach sand and a number of other projects in between. Can I assume that within that position that you might have had a bit of a history with plastics or was it other areas that sort of led you into that? 
Well, yeah, I did, well, I guess so. I can I can recall in you know back in 1975 in my first lectures post my graduation at the Melbourne State College, which is my first job. I was teaching in a Bachelor of Environmental Science Education degree course, and those things were I mean there's a whole range of things that were sort of had become really important. For example, metal mercury poisoning. We had Minamata and Nagata in Japan. Mm. We were looking at the impacts of metal mercury in fish, uh, waste products. Plastic wasn't such a big issue then, although we understood. And then uh, later times, I mean, through the 1990s, I was on the Council of the Australian Conservation Foundation, and we started to really appreciate the need to recycle. I mean, recycling was sort of born in that period. I've got a painting on my wall. I used to give lectures back in those days and did work for the Environment Protection Authority in Victoria, promoting recycling. And in those days, it was just your newspapers and whatever. But we understood the problem at both government level and also in non-profit circles and the environment groups. The 90s in particular, the 90s and the early 2000s, have simply seen an increase in that consumptive uh, economic model. Uh, and plastic has been everywhere and it's escalated to the predicament we find ourselves in today. So I guess talking about recycling and plastics and things like that, have you heard of the zero waste movement? Well, there are a number of them. Now, I have heard of the zero waste movement, but uh, I mean, and there's it's paralleled by a range of circular economy movements that I sit, for example, on an advisory board for the Australian Circular Textiles Association, uh, who are equal, and I, one I'm sort of sitting peripheral to about, you know, how do we get to develop a circular economy in the furniture industry? So mm -hmm. yes, the, there are a number, and they've changed their names, and they've, but they've, you know, they've all sort of come from the same same space. They've all now got the same really valuable objectives. I mean, one of the things about plastic, I've said, you know, for a long time, so I'm old enough now to have a five-year-old granddaughter, and I think, and I, and I sort of jokingly say to people, you know, she's going to be able to say to me one day, granddad, you mean you had oil and you burned it? You know, we, we actually need to probably reserve remaining accessible oil to make plastic for to replace people's hips and things like that, rather than, you know, making packaging uh, for a single use before disposal in a landfill or the ocean or wherever else. So we really have to change. And it's, and it's the economic model as much as anything. Um, I mean, I, I forget what, what do we make... Um, um, a million or more PET bottles a day. I, I forget what the number is. It's horrendous. Uh, and most of them are single use. I mean, it's just a complete not a waste of resources. So we've actually got to think about all our product choices. And that's, that's you know, that I often refresh people's memory. And, and we, we blithely go on because our economic model says it's throughput in the economy and uh, so, it's, uh, so it's GDP, so it's good. When it's not, yeah. there's some stupid models. I mean, I remind people when you turn the corner in the supermarket and you walk down that aisle that's wall-to-wall white plastic bottles full of chemicals, you've got to think about where all that stuff goes. Not only the packaging, but the stuff inside the bottles. I mean, most of that ends up in the sea, uh, you know, mm -hmm. through a seeds treatment plant or whatever, ultimately. So we've, we've actually got to make different choices in our purchasing. Well, first in our thinking, then in our purchasing. But there's got to be some better economic models to facilitate those better choices as we start to make them. So with saying that, do you believe that we have a lot of control over our plastic usage? Uh, well, we do ultimately as voters, I guess. But um, the, I mean, as as we've seen in in the uh, 
in the cl climate science debates, powerful vested interests carry the carry the greatest weight. I mean, we mm. see. Uh, I mean, we've even got a you know um, an ICAC in New South Wales today, and we see that influential property developers can pay for the ear of a minister uh, of the government uh, who uses his influence to influence other ministers in indeed perhaps the premier now that's been going on for years uh, it's it's accepted in many cases and which is frightful we've got you know every year the Koch brothers in the united states uh, give away a hundred million dollars uh, to fund the denial case on climate science. And unfortunately, um, those vested interests uh, have a lot of inertia in them. They don't want to change. They're quite happy with the model that they have because it uh, generates a lot of revenue. However, the leaders in that space uh, are, are really doing some good things. So as are the big financial institutions around the world now doing the best work in climate science, talking about the need for the finance sector to disclose its finance risk, and you must do it. And, uh, you know, you from the Reserve Bank and the Prudential Regulation Authority and, and ASIC are, are saying to corporations, no, you must dis disclose your carbon risk. And the same is happening. The big the big companies making large volumes of plastic realise that they have to change now very rapidly. So we're actually seeing better products being made. They're much more concerned about life cycle in terms of the products. The products are shifting, and you know we work with a food producer, and they're desperately concerned about changing their packaging to the least impact on environment. Uh, representative of a big German company called BASF is one of the big chemical uh, plastic developers and the leaders in that company in Australia saying they get calls every day what's it going to be it, it can't be plastic we've got to get out of plastic how do we, how do we, how do we what are we going to do uh, but we've actually got to change the behavioral stuff as well I think that once the behavioral stuff and what we actually do with it as purchasers as consumers has to happen in parallel and that's going to drive change too yeah, for sure. So if a change were to happen, you'd say it would need to be from more of an industry level? Well, I think industry is already moving. And the yeah. more that uh, consumers either reject plastic by not purchasing it, finding another yeah. way. I mean, I, well, co coffee cups is not a good example, but um, I refuse to buy a takeaway coffee cup. I mean, it frightens me that people your age, I see them walking down the street like zombies. And there's a culture. So that's a cultural thing. And we have mm. to go out for coffee. Well, no, you don't. I mean, my wife and I, we buy coffee beans and we make good coffee. Uh, and we're lucky enough to have plenty of places around here that roast. So we become quite, you know, not part of the coffee intelligentsia, but we know, you know, we buy good fresh coffee, put it in a china cup and and, and wash it efficiently mm. in the dishes. But I, I can't bear creating the waste. But, I mean, I've got a decades of indoctrination of myself not to create the waste. So we've actually got to get, you know, people to that space. I mean, it frightens me to see the waste that people put into their supermarket trolley. I mean, I just don't. I take a, I take an old, uh, in, in fact, uh, I can show it to them. Yeah, sure. The coffee beans bag. Oh, wow. Pretty cool. That is uh, pretty cool. Coffee beans from Honduras. 
and it's been rebuilt into a lovely lion shopping bag and it mm. goes everywhere and that carries everything and and I and I and I I, I try to buy you know I'm 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 as concerned about the packaging that I'm buying as the products that I'm buying when I make my choices so we don't use plastic bags inside the supermarket and we certainly don't use them as we're leaving the supermarket so yeah. our apples going loose and our potatoes going loose and we count them out at the check we don't put them in plastic and we and we develop that thinking and everybody's got to do that because the the volumes of stuff I mean can you imagine any any of your any anyone listening to this podcast today just sit yourself for half an hour or 10 minutes at the supermarket door and watch the stuff going out the door that's not the products that you bought so just think about mm -hmm. that that's just the packaging and just think about that volume for five minutes or 10 minutes or an hour and it's massive and then realize that behind the scenes i mean we worry about and we've got uh, you know recycling in supermarkets i think coles are doing that or whoever they are um, but you can understand that there's 10 times as much plastic and packaging behind the scenes before the food gets on the shelves because everything arrives on pallets wrapped up in thin film plastic. So, I mean, the volumes of plastic that we use to sustain just transmission of uh, just the purchasing of food is off scale. And it's happening yeah. around the world and, you know, we're probably not the worst in the world, but we're not the best either. No. So policy-wise, do you think we could change from a government level as well? Well, um, I, I can't believe that Victoria, uh, my home state, is just going to container deposit legislation. Um, I mean, South Australia's had the container deposit legislation since I was at university in the 70s, and it's worked, mm -hmm. and it's worked demonstrably. And there's a little economy in there, and you know, kids collect cans and all, and all that sort of stuff. So, I mean, we and it's and it's and it has been the big manufacturers that have uh, influenced government not to introduce that in Victoria. So Victoria is the last of Australian states. You know, I was in uh, New South Wales, and they've now got recycling facilities or no, uh, payback facilities, container deposit structures, and people arrive all the time and they get their they get their money back on the credit card. I mean, it's a simple thing to do. This is a this is a market mechanism, like the market mechanisms that we should have on products we buy in terms of their embedded carbon. I mean, we mm. have to we have to use our economic system valuably where we can to drive change. And this is the stupidity of the argument here against a, a carbon price. It's going to cost more. Well, it's not going to cost more if you change, if you make your choices differently and you purchase products that have got less embedded carbon. You won't be paying as much. If you reduce it to nothing, you don't pay a carbon tax. I mean, that's what it's designed to do. It's de designed to make you change. It's not designed yep. to put a cost on top of your lifestyle. Work out how you avoid it as we do with most taxes. So when Tony Abbott said, oh, it's a carbon tax, well, yeah, sure, but it's designed to make you change because we have to mm. do it differently. Business as usual doesn't work. What do you believe are some of the best ways to dispose of plastic so not to impact the environment? Um, well, it's difficult. And I know, I mean, and, and there are lots of things that work right down to incineration. There are things about, I mean, the life cycle analysis reveals lots of things. We did some work for a cement company uh, 
12 months ago. Uh, they currently put their cement into triple line paper bags, uh, which works okay. So the paper can the paper can either biodegrade or whatever, depending on how it's dealt with post-consumer. Uh, their proposition was that the retailer they were selling to them wanted to put the paper, stack those cement bags outside. So the retailer was more or less forcing them to put their cement into plastic. Now, it's a dilemma. And there's a middle version where you can have a paper bag with a, with a, uh, with a plastic uh, layer inside to protect it from water damage. Now, the, the proposition is interesting because properly recycled, plastic's a better product. If we can get the plastic back and, and turn it into new plastic, it's a better it's a better way to package the cement. And you yeah. can leave it outside, etc. The carbon footprint of it is about a 50% increase. So you we have to weigh this up. So it it works well if the re, if the producer and the retailer work together then to have a, a, a scheme that gets the plastic back to turn it back into new bags. But that's not the way we've operated in the past. It's sort of, this is how my product comes, else goes to the purchaser, nothing to do with me. We actually have to develop those new cycles to make those systems work. Now, what do you do with it? Ideally, uh, I mean, plastics are eminently recyclable in the real sense. It can be a cyclic process and be used over and over. Now, I had, um, I had a brief conversation with somebody on LinkedIn last night about, you know, um, recycling of water and I made the point yeah. in Australia we don't recycle water we reuse water or we try to get a second use out of water from sewage treatment plants and then it goes to and then it's disposed so it's second use before disposal it's a linear process it's not cyclic if we were actually recycling we'd be drinking water treated water from sewage treatment plants that would be a cyclic process but we then our water authorities get away with the bastardization of the word recycling. It's not recycling, it's reuse, second use. So we really need to think about, and it's the same, for example, for you know, we now have uh, products that put uh, put pla granulated plastic or granulated glass into road material. Now that's a second use, but it's not actually a cyclic process, it's not recycling. So it's taking stuff out of the waste stream. And it means that plastic's not being incinerated, but it's not actually it's not resource recovery, but it's better than landfill. So we've actually got to work out what the you know what what the layers of potential resource recovery can be, and always go for the highest value uh, in terms of. I mean, plastic can get contaminated. You can't recycle it for any reason. So okay, well, what's the the next least worst use? Other uh, than disposal or landfill, so we've actually got to have that better understanding, and that's education and cultural shift as well. So we've actually got them, and that's so uh, you know, so people have got to learn to make those choices in the supermarket. Oh, if I have to buy this in plastic, which plastic am I going to buy? Is this something that's going to be recyclable, reusable, or whatever? And that's that's a that's a that's an education thing as well. I, look, I think we're we're improving. But we're a long way from. I mean, I'm just. I'm a lot older than you. You will have noticed, Lauren, and I've seen a lot of these. Pro I've seen projects like this begin right back from the from the 1990s, and some mm -hmm. of them we haven't really come very far at all. 
Uh, yeah. You know, so for example, container deposit legislation taken thirty years for you know Victoria to adopt container deposit legislation. Mind you, it takes us about twenty years. It took us about twenty years to uh, get the world, the, the wet tropics and the Daintree into World Heritage and Southwest. All of those big things take about twenty years. They don't happen overnight. So. Um, mm. It would be nice to. It would be nice for a few of them to come to fruition and see us doing better things before I pass on, though. So I've got a, one last question for you. Uh, what would you say to encourage others to live more sustainably and lower their plastic waste? I think you know, as I said, I've been sort of you know since my since my so I remember in my twenties at university in a share house, and there's a supermarket up in Ligon Street, Carlton. And I remember one day I had to buy toothpaste. Mm. Uh, so I took this toothpaste off the shelf. And when I got to the cashier, I took the toothpaste tube out of its cardboard box and left it with the cashier and said to her, I don't need this plastic box. You only, you only needed to stack the toothpaste on the shelves. Right? So... I've been thinking about waste and the waste I create for a long time. What would I like to see? I'd just like to see some improvement. I'd just like to see some improvement. The thing that's motivated me most, as I mentioned before, I'm now a grandfather. And when I understand that even when Juniper is your age or my age, that'll be she'll be she'll be living in a climate that I hadn't even dreamt of. She, and I, but, I, but I hope that other things around her are such that you don't have to have the sort of conversation that you and I are having. I hope that we're actually others. Now, th there are some big shifts on the way. I mean, we're about, we are about to electrify everything and decarbonise lots and lots of stuff. We'll see the end of the internal combustion motor car engine probably in this decade, so in my lifetime. Um, we need to see massive shifts in construction of buildings and we need to properly value our oil resources become plastic and I think that that shifts in economic thinking but there are some cracking new economists uh, coming around to three of the best of women which are really is really good so Kate Rayworth who's Cambridge at Oxford and Mariana Machicado who's a uh, um, and the School of Economics and Stephanie Kelso in the US, and, and they're really pushing the envelope on new economic models to understand the sort of questions that we're talking about. They're not just talking about <laughs> throughput of materials and increased GDP and, and the stupidity of something we call growth for growth's sake. I mean, perpetual growth is neither plausible nor possible, said David Suzuki ages ago, and he's quite correct. At some stage, the music stops and someone doesn't have a chair. So we've actually got to understand the real value of resources and oil is going to be a critical one for plastic. Yeah, you're right. It's definitely going to be a difficult one for the road ahead. Well, Rob, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. Pleasure to meet you and talk with you, Lauren, too.